This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is Morgan Lee, and you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major current event. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Caitlin Beatty. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Caitlin. I am the print managing editor of Christianity Today magazine. We are coming from the lovely Carol Stream, a suburb of Chicago. And today we have the honor of having Karen Ellis on our show. Hi, Karen. Hey, ladies. Good to be with you. Thanks so much for being with us. Karen Ellis is quite an impressive person. She is currently a PhD candidate in church history at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in Oxford, England. She holds a Master of Art in Religion from Westminster Theological Seminary and a Master of Fine Art from the Yale School of Drama. She is currently an adjunct professor at Erskine Theological Seminary and at Oxford Graduate School. And I love this detail about you. You say um, you enjoy watching your passport fill up as you travel with your husband, who is theological anthropologist Dr. Carl F. Ellis Jr. And y'all have three amazing children, one grandbaby and a life of adventure. Mm. Thank you so much <laughs> for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Karen, where was the last place that you traveled to? Oh, gosh. Domestic or international? International. <laughs> <laughs> international. Last place I traveled internationally, uh, I was uh, doing uh, research induction at Oxford uh, Center for Mission Studies last fall. And uh, before that, I think I was in Guyana and the Caribbean. My husband and I were teaching around those parts uh, to helping people understand uh, understand Islam and the Islamic challenge and how to love your Muslim neighbor. So, yeah, we, we, uh, we get around quite a bit. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> and that's part of why you're joining us today. The big thing that we're going to be talking about this week is the Taliban's attacks on Easter Sunday that killed more than 70 people in Lahore, Pakistan. And even though the majority of those people that were killed were Muslims, the Taliban has said that they were specifically targeting Christians. On this show, you know, we talk about things that are really complex, that are really tense. Um, and then we try to acknowledge the tensions and then really work them out and figure out how Christians should respond. And so I want to dive into this specific incident as well as some of like the larger themes around persecution as a whole. And so I'm going to ask all of you guys on the show just to give me a sense in 140 characters or less what your gut reaction was to this news. And I'm going to kick that off to Caitlin first. Yeah, so I saw news of this event, this attack in Lahore um, over the weekend, and I was home with my family um, for Easter. And honestly, I felt not surprised and kind of this sense of fatigue. We see these headlines all the time. Here's just another attack. I don't even know how to begin processing it. So, so, Karen, you've done some work as an ambassador for International Christian Response, which works for persecuted Christians around the world. And I'm wondering if I could just get your initial reaction to this as well. Well, I guess like Caitlin, I wasn't surprised, uh, mostly because holidays are often fair game for attacks on Christians. But that holiday in particular, Easter, uh, with all the significance of life and death and blood and resurrection, uh, I was just sort of left with uh, the heaviness of how much there was there to unpack. 
personally, I think I felt kind of sick. I honestly figured as soon as I saw that there was news about an attack in Pakistan, I figured it had to do with its Christian population. And so I quickly went on Twitter and I typed in Pakistan and Christians into the search feed. And that's initially, those are the headlines that started coming up for me. So I want to kind of get into a bigger conversation about some of the issues that this attack raises. But first, Karen, I'm just wondering if you can give our listeners a sense about the extent to which this attack comes off as unique or surprising. Hmm. I would say, yes, it's unique, but surprising, as we've kind of already touched on, not really. And it's unique, I think, in that all persecution is determined culturally and historically and politically, and of course, comes in different grades and shades from region to region. Um, you know, many times you'll hear somebody say, well, you're not being displaced or bombed or beheaded, so you're not really being persecuted. But that's kind of a, you know, dishonest to compare anti-Christian hostility in one region to another because it's so localized and so determined by region. So marginalization of Christians in Pakistan looks totally different from how it looks for, say, Christians in North Korea. Different politics, different government structures, different histories, ideologies. In, in Lahore, particularly in Pakistan, you've got things that are, things that are set up where violent sectarianism is fairly commonplace in Pakistan. Christians aren't the only oppressed religious minority there. There are sects within Islam that also suffer, such as the Shias and the Ahmadis. But Christians are one group that are frequently targeted and they're considered to kind of be at the bottom of the social and the cultural totem pole. In the last few years in particular, we've seen a rise in church bombings there. And then on the other hand, with uh, the culture and society, they, they have a lot of economic sanctions and injustice placed on Christians that aren't placed on others. So they don't have a lot of ability to advance economically. They don't get equal wages to others in society or even just a fair wage for the work that they actually do. And all this has been legislated by the government. So all, all of these things are kind of contributing factors to what it's like for Christians to walk on eggshells in Pakistan. Um, they, they sort of eat and live and breathe a systemic oppression that's really similar to Jim Crow in the U.S. South. So I would say, yes, it's unique because of its particular cultural design, but it's not a surprise to a certain extent because the state has nurtured a sort of extremism through social discrimination of Christians for probably since the 1960s. That's really helpful, Karen. I, I guess I didn't realize that, you know, when we talk about oppression or persecution, it's not just isolated incidents of violence sure. from one group to another, but that the state itself and the laws and governance can work to further marginalize an ethnic or religious minority. Um, just for a sense of scale, how many Christians are in Pakistan currently? Do you happen to know off the top of your head? Yeah, it's about 1.6% of the population, which is roughly 200 million, just shy of that. Uh, and again, you know, the, the leg, one of the hot button issues uh, that's kind of been dominating foreign media and human rights conversations in particular is their harsh blasphemy laws. Now, what do those look like? Blasphemy laws are, you know, if you speak against the name of Muhammad um, in an Islamic society, or if you speak against the Quran, or if you in some way offend um, Islamic sensibilities or desecrate or perceived as having desecrated the Quran, um, there are some harsh penalties from prison imprisonment to death penalty. But those laws are often exploited to punish Christians for menial infractions. So like the case of Asiya Bibi, uh, she, had a dis she had an argument with her neighbor over water. 
and her neighbor accused her of blasphemy over a bowl of water. Her neighbor, neighbor accused her of blasphemy. And she's been on death row for five years now. So those things, it's kind of like um, someone claiming that you've, the, the penalty is, um, it's an easy way to destroy a Christian life, get even with somebody, ruin their family, ruin their reputation, whatever. So yeah, it really is a walking on eggshells for everyday life type situation. So Karen, I'm really glad that you brought up Asiya Bibi because I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit more broadly to the topic of Christian persecution globally. And Asiya Bibi, for those of our listeners who are not aware, is probably one of the most like name recognizable Christians who's been persecuted within the last five to 10 years. Um, and as Karen mentioned, she's been on death row for some time now, and her case has been working its way up through the different courts. Um, and they're expecting expecting a resolution in the, in the next coming months. There's a chance, of course, that she may be set free. And at the same time, it doesn't look very optimistic because if you know she's set free, she'll probably have to leave the country with her family. But more broadly, I was just wondering if we would be able to just talk about what some of the biggest persecution headlines we've seen in the past five years are. And if you guys just want to name those off the top of your head, and then I'll have some questions for you about that. Gosh, remember the Chaibot kidnappings in Nigeria? Those generated a lot of social media interest. Um, the Bring Back it, Our Girls campaign. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Those girls have been missing almost two years now. And the girls were specific. Was it a religiously motivated act? Well, it was an act that was, um, it was, there were Christian girls, mostly Christian girls that were taken. There were some Muslim girls as well. Uh, of course, it was a, uh, an assault against a particular community by, the, by Boko Haram. Uh, which is uh, r- another radical Muslim group in Nigeria. Those families, uh, they've been working, the activists have been working valiantly on the ground, and it's all grassroots activity. They've worked valiantly to maintain interest in finding those girls. We're going on 700-plus days now. Um, that's just one small pocket of what's happening in Nigeria. The killing of Christians has increased by about 62% in northern Nigeria. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember uh, Miriam Ibrahim mm-hmm. in Sudan. The interesting thing about Miriam Ibrahim and Asiya Bibi both, they're both blasphemy cases, and they're both young mothers who spent significant time in prison uh, for their crimes. They've been highlighted quite a bit. Of course, you remember Saeed Abedini in Iran. I just interviewed him for Christianity Today for the May issue. <laughs> wow, I look so, forward to that. Yeah, yeah. he's his story is is fresh on my mind and you know obviously he was released in January in a prisoner swap initiated by President Obama, but I think one of the aspects of his story that seems to resonate with a lot of American Christians is this his role as a father and a and a husband and we we sympathize when we see the personal human cost involved in these persecution stories. Yeah. Can remember Kenneth Ba in North Korea? Believe it or not, I will be speaking with him shortly too. Oh, terrific. Like today. Oh, I want your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kenneth Ba his uh, well you can probably say more about it than I can, but his I remember his imprisonment was exacerbated by Dennis Rodman's terribly fated quote-unquote goodwill tour and his chummy friendship with Kim Jong-un. Nothing good can come from that a kind of person that has that hair, <laughs> as Dennis Rodman does. That was such a painful thing to watch unfold, you know. Um, but those are, those are probably the names I think most Americans are familiar with through the mainstream media. Caitlin, what type of sense do you get about which stories really interest Western Christians? Well, I think the, the story of the individual 
who's who's coming up against harsh laws, who's being imprisoned, who is apparently being tortured or pressured to recant their faith. I think those stories and even those names, you know, we just rattled off names and these in some ways these Christians have become kind of celebrities in the Western Christian world. And I think it's that we have such a hard time wrapping our minds around incidents that take so many lives. So the bring back our girls, I mean, you know, hundreds of girls who are, who have now been missing. It's almost easier to comprehend the story of an individual who's experiencing harshness or persecution than it is the the big group, you know? Mm -hmm. I would have to say I agree with that 100%. It's the the ones that the the mainstream media are interested in are the ones that will inform us as Americans with uh, our nationality as a shared connection. But of course, that's controlled by the media. Uh, and that's their job to a certain extent. But what's I think what's compelling to all human beings are details. Detail is the one thing we lose in, in our world of social media consumption. But uh, what's that quote that's uh, often misattributed to Joseph Stalin? The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. In, in this case, it kind of holds, that, that quote does hold some truth. If I tell you that 72 people were killed in Lahore on Sunday and three to 400 were injured, it creates an immediate picture in your mind and you have a, a, a visceral reaction. If I tell you that the dead included 24 children and their parents, that gives you a different picture, right? Uh, they belong to both Christian and Muslim faiths. That fills out the picture more for you. They came to the park to celebrate on Easter Sunday and evening. Now your, pic your mind begins to fill in the picture. You start to ask questions like, what were they doing there? Were they friends? Did they know each other? Was there some sort of outreach going on? Was it coincidence? Now, if I give you a name and I tell you that uh, this is a real man, a pastor named Shaquille Anjum buried six of his parishioners from that church blast on Sunday. And then I tell you that he said that these were just six of many more anguished families that saw them, that he saw bury their dead on Easter Monday. And he gives you the image of they're bent over their coffins with grief and he's walking with his Bible in his hand and he's got incredible gravity in his eyes. Your picture is even more full and it hits you in an even more profound way. So I agree with Caitlin. It's the humanization that matters. The details hold the life and the lives hold the details. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's the way the Bible came to us, right? It's written in narrative form. People who live in marginalized cultures in two-thirds world get the power of narrative. They get the power of oral history and the power of telling our stories. We, maybe in the West, like to focus more on the data and the doctrine of the Bible, sometimes ignoring this, the narrative itself that carries the data and the doctrine. So, yes, I agree. It is the details and the devil isn't in them. God is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's really good. I, I also, you already touched on this, Karen, but I think, you know, one of the reasons that this most recent attack in Pakistan resonated so deeply was this symbolic weight of it happening at an Easter holiday, you know, this this day when it's the most joyful day of the Christian calendar, um, when we celebrate new life and resurrection and the promise of resurrection. And yet, for many families in Lahore that day, Easter is now going to be associated with this profound death and destruction. And, and where, where, what is Christ's uh, promise of new life and resurrection? What does that mean for them now in, in their grief and in their loss? This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, 
but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. One of the most tragic things about last week was that this particular terrorist attack was not the only terrorist attack that happened last week. There were also attacks in Turkey. There were attacks in Belgium as well. And on social media, there's been a sense of kind of like stepping away from the grief itself. And people have begun to ask why they grieve some tragedies and react to others in a different way. I'm wondering between the both of you, if you think there's a particular way that Christians should especially grieve the death of other Christians um, that's unique from when, you know, other people die in tragedies who did not share the same faith as us. Well, I mean, just what we were talking about with the Lahore attacks, we are to mourn not like those who have no hope. And so... You know, what that looks like on the ground to, to mourn and also to have joy in Christ and in the promise that, you know, the, the world as it is, is, it's not going to be this way forever. You know, we're not going to have to live in fear of attack and violence forever. So I think that's important to keep in mind. I, this, this takes the question that Morgan asked in a slightly different uh, direction, but I, I am struck by the fact that most Christians in the United States, myself included, don't pay that much attention when acts of violence are targeting people from other religions and other faiths, that there's not quite the same emotional outpouring, or we see it as, well, that's their problem, or that's that country's problem, or that religion's problem. And I'm actually wondering, how do we mourn the death of people who are not Christians, but who are nonetheless experiencing religious persecution who are marginalized and who are restricted in in their in their freedom of religious expression which we understand to be a fundamental human right you know there's a lot of talk uh in social justice circles of the the image of god the imago dei and we all affirm that everyone is an image bearer and so that's that's what makes violent death a violation to reasonable people of all faiths to people of no faith there's just something intrinsic in us whether we acknowledge, you know, the God of the Bible or not, there's something intrinsic in us that knows that death is not, it's not right. It's, it's not our, it's not, it wasn't supposed to be. So, so there's that approach, you know, for the people who, who, who don't know Christ, uh, who don't ascribe to the, the God of the Bible. You know, there's that, there's that still that sense of violation that all of us should feel. Um, nobody talks much in those circles, though, about the unique image of Christ that the believer bears and how that changes the death dynamic. I mean, if it's, if it's hubris to violate what remains of the image of God in any innocent human being, it seems an even more profound offense to violate the name of Christ that the believer bears. And I can't help but wonder if this is why in the Bible it says, that Christ regards the death of those who bear his name as precious in his sight. He's, he's grieved by the deaths of all men, but those who bear his name are precious in his sight. He's willing that all should come to repentance and that none should perish, but those who bear his name are precious to him. And so death is, death is always a bittersweet proposition, no matter whose door it knocks on. Uh, but for the Christian, I think it's best always to express the balance, the bitterness, the anger and the sorrow for the believer and the unbeliever, and the anger and sorrow and the bitterness of a brother or sister's death at the hands of injustice and also of the hope of the life to come. I try to express both 
I try to be balanced when I write and when I tweet um, to, I try to uh, point people towards organizations that not just show compassion on um, other religious, other oppressed religious minorities in, in death, but also in life. People who, uh, who share resources, people who pour out uh, emergency aid, not just on the Christians in a region, but also on the, uh, the non-Christians as well. Are there, just as a follow-up question, are there organizations or groups that you think do this especially well that you share and talk about um, online and in social media? I do. There are some that are, they, I, I always talk about the differences between uh, Christian charity organizations and the persecuted churches, different organizations with flavors or things that they're really good at. For example, um, Barnabas Fund UK you know, they're also, there's also some overlap in what they're all doing. Uh, Barnabas Fund UK is a great organization who uh, ministers, particularly in the Middle East. And what their gift is in particular, besides providing aid, is providing cultural analysis. They tell you not only what happened, but how we got there politically, how we got there culturally, how these dynamics are affecting the situation on the ground. Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs. Of course, you know, people know the big ones, and I, and I, tr and I trust them. Uh, my organization, International Christian Response, is particularly good with Christian church planters in hostile regions, indigenous planters. Um, so we, we raise, we're there with them from the time that they say, I believe I'm called to plant a church to the time all the way through trouble, all the way we're there in good times and bad times. So each one has a different flavor and each one has a different focus. And, um, I think the general consensus among them is that we're all sort of pulling for the same, we're all very kingdom minded and pulling for the same goals. So we don't, we don't perceive it as competition, you know? Sure. So I just wanted to bring it back a little bit to maybe addressing this idea of like favoritism that potentially it seems like some Christians may bestow towards other Christians, potentially, potentially at the expense of other minority groups. Um, and I think that within our churches and among other Christians, there is a space to grieve the death of other Christians in a way that's unique and that honors this shared faith that we're a part of. But I would definitely say that at a political level, I think that Christians are able to advocate best for their own when they're advocating for all those that are most vulnerable and that need it the most. And so I'm thinking in particular of how ISIS was going after both Christians in the area and Yazidis as well, mm -hmm. and that right. it's important to recognize the rights of the Yazidis or even the Muslims that are being targeted specifically by ISIS and realizing that, especially for Christians in our context, we are able to talk to a lot of the stakeholders in our own government. And we can do that not only on behalf of those that share our faith, but those are all who are also going to be affected by um, ISIS's wickedness in many ways. I'm wondering if we can briefly just touch on what support for persecuted Christians looks like for Western Christians as well. Um, I know that when I was younger, um, we used to specifically pray in my household for different names that Voice of the Martyrs gave to us. Um, and at different times, we gave to Voice of the Martyrs as well. But I'm, I'm wondering if it's something that works better when it's just you're personally writing letters and encouraging them there or addressing this on social media. What, what does advocacy and activism look like? Yeah, if you have resources to give, that kind of support is great. Um, you know, God takes the loaves and fishes and he multiplies them. And then, you know, there's just some things that you need uh, financial resources to, to support and protect people resources. You know, I, I would say find agencies that, like we were saying earlier, support and report with 
compassion for Christians and other repressed, uh, other oppressed religious minorities and the adversary that's oppressing them. So there are folks that will, you know, they, they take more of a, uh, an us and them approach, but, you know, people who are more kingdom minded, organizations that are more kingdom minded and actually want to see, um, a lot, want to encourage the salvation and the, um, the understanding of, the uh, one who's doing the oppressing, seeing Saul's become Paul's. And, and, and th- because that's, you know, that's the whole, that's in some ways leaving that kind of physical witness is the whole thrust of, um, of Christian persecution. It's defying the world's understanding of how you should, how you should be reacting in this situation, how normal people, quote unquote, would react in a situation like this. It's the, it's the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. Uh, writing letters of encouragement to political prisoners is a great, great way to do something tangible, uh, something that will go a long way. The larger a charity sites specialize in these types of campaigns. You can do it through email, so it's an easy process. Uh, it's either Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors or possibly both that have those, those processes in order, those mechanisms in order for you to do that. Supporting the work of smaller agencies like International Christian Response, um, with whom I'm an ambassador. We're in 33 different countries. We've helped in the past, um, not just with persecution, but with floods that affected Christians and Muslims alike. Uh, we did that work together with Shabazz Bhatti in, uh, in Pakistan, who was the uh, late martyred minority minister. He was the only Christian in the whole government. And um, uh, ironically, was actually a part of the, his murder was a part of the events that, uh, were, that transpired last weekend uh, as a response to uh, holding his uh, murderer to accountability and bringing him to justice. We responded last year, and uh, in the last years when Christian towns were being flattened uh, during church attacks, and uh, we'll also, we're also committed to helping brothers and sisters hands-on in this, in this tragedy as well, and we're committed to doing that in the future. And then I would say on a grassroots level, um, I'm, I so admire the work that the Bring Back Our Girls campaign does uh, in Nigeria, and what they do is they tell the stories um, they're also on the ground praying with their feet. They tell the stories, particularly the ones of victory and wisdom living in the midst of hostility. Uh, mainstream media is not going to do that work for us, and it's not their job. Uh, so it's up to us to do what CNN and MSNBC and Fox and others, you know, what they're not hired to do. Uh, for example, the Christian youth, particularly in Lahore, Pakistan, they've assembled into security teams ever since last year's church bombings to make sure people can get to and from church safely. And then this one might sound strange, but giving blood preemptively, no matter where you are. I, I, know can't. Sounds- I can't. Oh, you can't. Okay. The needles. I just can't. Um, well, let me just, let me just tell you what I saw online and doing that is vital. How vital? <laughs> vital. Yeah. I saw pictures of folks lined up from the Ahmadi community, uh, which is an oppressed sect of Islam in the region. And in, in Pakistan after Sunday's massacre, and they were lined up after the attacks to give blood to aid the Lahore blast victims. And wow. I thought this was an excellent and loving community response from, from the Muslim community. And so, yeah, those are, I guess those are just a handful of um, really practical ways that you can be involved. I know there's a lot to deal with in our own backyard, and we should be attending to those issues as well. But it, it doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. It really, I think we're required by Scripture and by our union with Christ for it to be a both-and proposition. We don't get a choice in this. I also just want to, something that has struck me as actually important is social media campaigns. And I think, you know, it's easy to say, 
really? Can a hashtag do that much? You're just sending out a tweet. This is not requiring much of you. And yet in talking to Saeed Abedini for this interview, one of the things he said was that he believes American Christians really have more power to influence our president and our government leaders than we think. And that campaigns, whether they're online or sending letters to the president, any kind of advocacy, even if it only takes two minutes, if hundreds and thousands of people are doing it, it really does create a groundswell. And it, and it makes it harder and harder for the people in power to just ignore that outcry. So this is a pro Twitter <laughs> message that the, the social media campaigns really can't have a positive effect. I agree. Yeah, I would agree with that as well, if only for this fact that when a particular event like this happens, it's so much easier to find information about the event when there is a hashtag basically codifying all those responses and bringing them together. Mm -hmm. Guys, I'm so glad that we could talk about this for a second. And Karen, thank you so much for offering some of these more practical ways um, to get involved and to help and to how to think through all of this stuff. We would really welcome all of you listeners to give us some feedback and your thoughts on this as well. So you can go on Twitter and do that. We are at CT Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook as well and continue the conversation there. We are now going to move on to Precious Moments, and this is the time in the show where we get to hear some of the joyful and happy moments in all three of our lives. And then also, if you guys can all share where people can find you online after this show ends. Karen, can you start? Wait a minute. Precious Moments. <laughs> is, is this named after those big-eyed statues that people have in their you probably <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Please tell us you grew up with one. You love I them. I hate those things. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a Precious Moments Chapel. Wait, oh, what? No. It is a replica of the Sistine Chapel. It's in like Nebraska or North, North Dakota. But all of the figures are painted to look like Precious Moments figures. Oh, man. So Michelangelo gone Precious Moments? Yes, exactly. That's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, let's see, my, a precious moment. I, I would say it's been in just talking with, for me, talking with our advocates and our directors, our regional directors with International Christian Response this week. Uh, you know, for us, the work goes on. You know, I think when uh, someone comes out of prison and it's a high profile case, and you know, it's easy to think, oh, well, well, Christian persecution is all over and it's done with now because they've been released. The person I've been advocating for is free. You know, and it's, it's just, it's not, it's not reality. Um, each, each major case that you see is representative of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of faithful saints who navigate, um, hostile conditions every day and we never hear about them. Um, there are secret believers like, um, we're working with, um, um, alongside promoting the TV show of a former Shia and former Sunni uh, who are supposed to be historical enemies, um, but they're now brothers in Christ, and they've both spent time in prison, and now they're hosting a Ministry of Reconciliation TV show on Al-Hayat TV. Um, you know, the untold stories are numerous, and they're inspiring, and, um, you know, just continuing to work with people who've survived numerous imprisonments and acid burnings and tortures and, you know, forced repatriation after escape. Uh, their stories, for me, continue to bring into focus the ingenuity and the resilience and even the perseverance of the saints. You talk about hashtag activism. I have a hashtag that people follow me on. It's the uh, hashtag we persevere. 
And uh, it's sort of the flip side of persecution. Yes, person, the Bible speaks, you know, very much of persecution, but it also speaks of the fact that we, we do persevere under very difficult circumstances. And it's the spirit of God that enables us to do that. So um, I, I, I think my precious moment is looking forward to helping others persevere, watching others persevere, and telling the stories of those who are continuing to persevere. Where else can people find you online? Uh, you can check out my um, my blog. It's KarenAngelaEllis.wordpress.com. You can follow me on Twitter at K underscore A underscore Ellis. And um, there'll be some more social media and web things popping up over the next few days. So, yeah, we'll look look out for that. Thanks, Karen. Mm -hmm. Caitlin. Well, my precious moment is so much less serious than Karen's. <laughs> so with that caveat, I spent the weekend in Ohio with my parents and I have a great relationship with them and they just celebrated their 36th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. I was just looking at their um, wedding photo last night and they're like babies in the photo and it's they were like 22 and just really grateful for um, their love for one another, their love for me and my brother, and just the way that they have modeled um, marital faithfulness for a big part of their life. 36 years. That wasn't yesterday. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Some people don't make it 36 hours. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. And I don't gush about my parents that much. So you don't have to worry about like, Finding a lot of gushy tweets there. Retweeting dad jokes. You know. Retweeting dad jokes, yeah. But yeah, at Caitlin Beatty. My precious moment this week is a book that I just got in the mail yesterday called Raising Mixed Race. And it's written by a woman who is half Asian and half white. And her husband is half Asian and half white. Hmm. And she is doing, she was looking for resources um, for, I went about parenting and she discovered there wasn't a lot of them. And so she ended up doing some of her own research and writing a book about it. And I'm excited to read this. This is similar to what my genetic makeup is mm -hmm. or my family story. And I feel like I can learn a little bit more about myself through reading that. Raising Mixed Race by Sharon H. Chang. Hmm. My, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And that is it for us this week. Thank you to all our listeners for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen and getting us up to number 15 on the iTunes charts Woo! on the spiritual and religious category. We appreciate all you guys so much. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Alred and special thanks to Kate Shellnut. Please, please, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and SoundCloud and we are also on Stitcher. And if you like the show, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes too. That helps us even more. We will talk to you later next week. See you next week. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bows Podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.